Welcome to the Air Health, Our Health podcast. I'm Erica, a lung and ICU doctor. Every day in my ICU and clinic, I see patients who are there from breathing unhealthy air. And I started Air Health, Our Health to focus more upstream on the importance of healthy air for healthy people and healthy economies. Thanks for joining me. Those of you who have been listening to this podcast have learned by now about some of the many health effects of air pollution. For example, we now know that air pollution can cause asthma in children and worsens asthma in those who suffer from it. Asthma is a disease in which the breathing tubes become very inflamed and can become obstructed by mucus and spasm down, narrowing the airways and making it almost impossible to breathe. Asthma is caused by a complex variety of factors, and it is often difficult to say at the individual level what has led one person to have asthma and another person to not. However, we know that at the population level, certain risks in the air we breathe lead to asthma and poor asthma control. For example, black carbon is a component of a particularly deadly form of particulate matter called PM2.5, often forming its backbone, carrying deadly combustion particles deep into the lung where they cross into the bloodstream and circulate throughout the body, causing disease in nearly every organ and from womb to tomb. Pregnant women exposed to it have premature deliveries and give birth to children who are smaller for age, which can increase their risk of lung disease. Multiple studies have shown that exposure to black carbon stunts the growth of a child's lungs and increases the risk of that kid developing asthma. One study looked at healthy children from non-smoking homes and measured the black carbon in the cells they coughed up and found that as the black carbon in their lungs increased, their lung function decreased. The black carbon in their lungs was directly related to their air pollution where they lived. The damage does not stop in childhood because we are all vulnerable to the air we breathe. This tiny particulate matter can circulate all around the body, causing disease, including heart attacks, strokes, lung disease, as well as decreased brain function, including studies showing MRI changes in children's brains, worsened vocabulary and cognitive performance, as well as associations with dementia in the elderly. In my hometown, a study of a school in North Portland located by a freeway had black carbon levels far in excess of the ambient benchmark. This is in the formerly Red Line district of Albina, the heart of the historic black community in Portland, Oregon. Today, you are going to meet someone from this neighborhood who suffers from asthma and hear how it impacts her life. And I hope it provides an understanding of the cost to a child and family when someone develops asthma. Asia Allen attended Boise Elliott Elementary School, which is located very close to I-5, as well as Benson Polytechnic High School, which sits right above I-84. She attended college at Grambling State University, where she danced with Orkesis Dance Company. She has suffered from asthma since childhood and learned in college about the effects of air pollution on asthma. She wants to be sure that other children don't develop asthma that could possibly be prevented. You're also going to hear from Ben Duncan, who is the Chief Diversity and Equity Officer for Multnomah County. He has been with the county since 2004, when he began his career in environmental health as a community health worker. He has since worked as a health educator, policy analyst, and manager of the Health Equity Initiative. He is also a founding board member of Opal Environmental Justice Oregon, an organization that organizes low income and people of color to build power for environmental justice and civil rights in the community. He also serves as chair of the Oregon Governor's Environmental Justice Task Force and recently became chair of Oregon Public Health Institute's board. Welcome both of you to the Air Health, Our Health podcast. Ben, let's start with you. Can you share a bit about the history of concern around air pollution and diesel particulate matter in North Portland? Yeah, so thanks. And it's a pleasure to, to join you today. Um, it's a great question and one in, in which my, I think my memory and, and history may be limited. Um, but know that I can trace the work back to at least 1995. Uh, the Environmental Justice Action Group at the time and the Oregon Environmental Council produced a report called Healthy Albina. Uh, and that report really mapped uh, a lot of the environmental health threats that were present in the Albina neighborhood in, in North, Northeast Portland. And as, as uh, many people may be aware or, or surely are, um, that community is home to many people of color as well as a lot of low-income families. And, that report at the time um, 
really reflected that 55% of, of all toxic emissions uh, reported in 1995 in Multnomah County originated in that community, uh, even though 13% of the county's population lived there. Um, and that connection right between environmental hazard and human health that the Environmental Justice Action Group um, really used to leverage and advocate against the expansion of I-5, uh, which they won. It was one of the big wins for EJAG at the time. And here we are, you know, 20 something years later, 26, if my math is correct, right? Still having that conversation <clears throat> around that, that, that uh, uh, I-5 corridor. And I know in my own work, right, just going back through some of that history, like participating in the North Portland Diesel Emission Reduction Project, which you know doesn't quite roll off the tongue, um, which was convened by uh, Oregon Solutions in 2006, specifically called out diesel pollution uh, based on studies by EPA and Oregon DEQ uh, that once again right, showed that elevated pollution, respiratory ailments disproportionately affecting communities of color in North Portland uh, in relationship to land use patterns, right, around ship and barge traffic, vehicular traffic on I-5, et cetera. And so that's going back to 2006. And that was really a public-private partnership, really trying to say, like, how do we come to consensus with, with you know, trucking companies and shipping companies that are going to voluntarily kind of do the, the goodwill of trying to protect uh, public health? And then 2008, right, so that process unfolded, uh, the Portland Air Toxic Solutions Advisory Committee was formed, uh, convened by Oregon Consensus and DEQ, um, and, and you know, I was a part of that, that advisory committee and we worked for three years in an uh, attempted collaborative effort uh, to develop an air toxics reduction plan for the region. Um, and we can come back to that if we want to talk about whether that was successful or not, but I think it, it illustrated a lot of the challenges that we have when we're, we're trying to do kind of consensus and collaborative problem solving uh, around these type of issues. But what it did do, and DQ uh, really ran this study that resulted in the first ever environmental justice analysis on air toxics that not surprisingly, showed that diesel particular in particular as one of the toxins of interest that we were looking at disproportionately affected uh, specifically the African-American black communities in our region. So that's a, you know, that kind of brings us up and then I think we have kind of the legislative actions and the work of, you know, great advocates uh, like Neighbors for Clean Air and Opal Environmental Justice Oregon and Beyond Toxics and others who have really tried to kind of lift up the issues um, uh, around environmental hazard and human health. Um, so to be, be clear, I'm going to summarize, we're not unaware of the hazards, right? We're not unaware of the issues of air pollution, uh, particularly related to community proximity to highways and, and freight routes. Um, it's been well-documented and communities have been advocating uh, and, and kind of fighting this battle for, for many, many years. Yeah, and it seems like it's a part of a pattern that we see across the United States and, and globally, you know, regarding communities of color being at, you know, higher risk of exposure to air pollution. You know, I've been doing some Spanish language podcasts recently looking at where um, Latino communities often are also located closer to freeways. Um, and it, it seems that, you know, Portland is, is not spared despite our green reputation from having this really distressing um, feature in our own air, air shed as well. And what have been the obstacles to addressing this that the community has been facing for the last 26 years since it's been raising these concerns? Yeah, I mean, that's a, it's a complex question, right? In part because, 
regulatory policy is complicated, right? And environmental justice has always been this challenging balance between kind of economic opportunity and viability and human health. Um, and that cost benefit analysis, uh, at least in my opinion, is always focused on the economic losses, uh, not calculating for the human health costs, um, whether that's jobs or industrial kind of costs, uh, uh, costs or, or business viability. But you know, I think essentially it's a question of power. Um, and part of the reason we see you know, what we might call undesirable land uses in low-income and communities of color is that these uses seek the path of least, the path of least resistance, um, the path towards lowest land values, the path towards you know, uh, the least political capital. And you know, environmental justice has been about building power in communities. Um, I think environmental justice action group said this you know, years ago, and it's kind of a mantra in EJ that communities that speak for themselves back to protect themselves. Uh, and of course, people need jobs and freight needs to move around cities to provide goods and services that we use every day. And industry produces both jobs and goods. Um, so there's, there's some reality in that balance. Um, of need. And I think our you know, ultimate question is um, how do we account for, right, and find equitable balance between these things um, so that we can protect population health while also ensuring that communities can thrive in environments that are healthy and, as EJ folks say, where we live, work, play, and practice spirituality. Um, and that's really been the center of the environmental justice movement since its inception that and, and EJ advocates and public health advocates and environmental advocates, regulatory agencies, and, and I would argue responsible business and industry partners uh, really need to all work together towards finding uh, ways towards healthy, vibrant and, and, and uh, equitable communities. Yeah. Well, Asia, um, speaking of someone who's grown up over the last 26 years in North Portland while your community was working to clean up the air, can you tell us about your experience growing up in North Portland, where you went to school, and you know um, how you became interested in in this work? Yes, um, first of all, it's a pleasure being here today and joining you guys. Um, but throughout your whole conversation, Ben, I was just thinking about like, wow, that's me. <laughs> he's he's talking about you know like I was born in 1994, um, so it's literally you know the life that I live and the effect of everything that has happened. You know what I mean? Um, I am, but anyways, um, my name is Asia Allen. I grew up in Portland, Oregon, specifically uh, Northeast, right around Albina. I went to school at Boise Elliott. That's where I went until I was in the fifth grade. And then I went to SEI Academy, which is a couple blocks away from there. And then for high school, I attended Benson Polytechnic High School. And for college, I went to um, Grambling State Univers University, which is in Grambling, Louisiana. Growing up for me, it really looked like uh, a sickly kid <laughs> going to the nurse every day after recess because I ran too much and, you know, being out of breath where I've got an asthma attack just my childhood being disturbed and interrupted, you know, for a problem that, that could have been prevented. For majority of my life, I grew up around the areas of where they're always doing construction. And to be specific, I grew up on interstate, interstate in Massachusetts. So around the time that I was probably like 
eight or nine years old, they began building the railroad tracks for the maps. And that's, you know, that's somewhere that I played outside. So every day, not even knowing that it was just a danger, just, you know, just trying to be a regular kid. And also at that time I was attending Boise Elliott Elementary. So from the years that I was, the first day I started school all the way up until, shoot, even eighth grade, because I attended SEI Academy, which was a couple blocks from there, I was in the, right in the midst of where they were building so much stuff. So it's not surprising to me when I find out that I have environmental asthma, which is something that's, you know, asthma and sickness that's caused by the environment. Something that many people may know that they have asthma, but not that there's a way that it can be prevented for our generations and children to come. If we can just, you know, come together as a community and find a common ground to, so that's, that's one of the main obstacles, being very sick <laughs> all the time. Yeah, well, one thing that I always hear people talk about what, you know, kind of when we talk about trying to clean up the air is they'll talk about how much it would cost a, a business or a construction company to use cleaner equipment or how much it would cost us to use cleaner transportation. But I was hoping you could speak for a moment about how much asthma has cost you and your mom. I know she was a small business owner in North Portland. Can you, how much is, does your disease cost you? How much has it cost you? Yeah, for sure. So as a kid, it's never, my mom has never like put me at guilt for everything that I cost her, but um, it's definitely, it's a definitely known factor that we did not have insurance when, when I was a child. So I had five siblings, which two, three of us all had asthma. One who grew out of it. Um, and then my other brother who has asthma as well. So not only was it me that was constantly getting sick, and a lot of times it would just be small, minor colds, something that, you know, the rest of the kids can fight off. But for me, if I just get a minor cold, then that can send me into a crisis and an attack in a quick second. So that alone, you know, um, <laughs> made it so I had a little bit more attention than the other kids. But financially, I just know that it was it was definitely a burden um, because at first I, the, the, the school would always call the ambulance. And my mom was like, please don't call me first. Cause that, that alone is, you know, I don't know the numbers exactly, but around three to 5,000 just to get to the hospital. Um, so that's definitely something that was costly as well as the medicine. Because like I said, at the time we didn't have any insurance at all. So for my mom to have two children who actively, actively had asthma it was, you know, it was definitely a lot. And growing up, my mom, she started a daycare when I was, um, when I was born, cause she didn't want anybody watching my kids. But since then she's expanded to, she's expanded to daycare um, centers versus working at home. And we are currently still, you know, operating um, despite COVID and everything, but, and we're right in the center of, <laughs> of construction. So we're located on Mississippi, which, you know, everybody, you know, knows by now that it's, it's being changed into something else. Um, and with that being said, that takes construction. Financially growing up, it was always a hassle for my mom, you know, just trying to make ends meet 
raising six kids, taking care of a business, and also having kids that have specific and really severe illnesses. And now that I'm an adult, I actually see how much it costs just to be in the hospital. And this it's nowhere near cheap. So when I was in the hospital the first time, I remember receiving, um, you know, just bills and everything. And I'm like, 50,000 just to, that's like a, <laughs> a everything exclusive resort, you know what I mean? Like three times, I don't know, but it was just so costly just for the different, you know, the different um, machines and everything they had to use. Anytime there's an x-ray, anything, it's, I did not know, but it definitely adds up. And yeah, so fast forward um, years later, that was in 2017 when I first met Dr. Moseson and I had my first really severe ICU stay. Um, the next time was in 2019. So I already have that debt from 2017. And then it comes 2019 where I unexpectedly get sick again. And I believe I had the rhinovirus, which was not, <laughs> which was not very severe or you know, bad for anybody else. But being around children and working in a daycare where there's constantly germs being, you know, thrown at me, I just wasn't able to fight, uh, fight that off. Um, so in 2019, I had a hospital, hospitalization stay as well for a month. And um, that's a whole nother 20, 30,000. I don't know the numbers at all, but I'm just like that. I'm still in recovery from the last time. And then here comes another time. Fast forward to 2000. 20 and I'm in the hospital again because of pneumonia so it's just like it it definitely adds up and I mean there's so many different resources and everything but that doesn't take away from the fact that it can be prevented in the first place um and then you know the last time that I was in the hospital it was due to the fires but it was also due to the fact that I was kicked out of my insurance so I wasn't able to get the proper medications that I needed right away, which creates a, a totally different problem because now I'm off the, the regular schedule of the medicines that I'm, I'm used to taking to make me feel better. And something as small as I believe I had pneumonia sent me into the hospital for, for an, an entire month. And um, on top of that, if COVID wasn't enough, <laughs> and asthma wasn't enough, then it was the fires that also caused me to go um, under really quickly. And I think that uh, when I was when I was in the hospital in April and in September was probably the, the closest time that I've actually experienced to death. Um, just being, you know, having the tubes out my throat and waking up to doctors like we didn't know if you were going to wake up or not. That's scary being 26 years old and experiencing so much that there's so many resources, but it, it still doesn't take away from the fact that, I don't know, it can change at any time from the, you know, the, the medicines that we as medics need to survive. Yeah. And um, one of the things that I know has been so hard for you is you are an incredible dancer. I mean, you danced in college and you're um, athleticism and your, you know, need to breathe for the, you know, the dancing you do. Um, can you talk a little bit about how asthma impacts that or how needing to take steroids and prednisone affects your, your passion? Absolutely. So uh, one thing about prednisone, the medicine that you mentioned, the, 
the biggest thing that, you know, um, is difficult to handle is the weight that puts on our body, you know? So as a kid, being sick for a couple of weeks and coming back to school as, <laughs> as a totally different kid, my mom didn't understand. We didn't know what was happening because it was something that I developed over time. I wasn't born with asthma. Um, anyways, I am a dancer. So specifically I do ballet, modern, jazz and hip hop. And I've been, in, I've been into performing arts um, since I was younger. I used to do a lot of theater and acting, but when I got to Gremlin, um, my dance instructor, instructor, sorry, she, she got me from the theater and she was just like, I think you're gonna be a dancer. So I start going to dance class and, and I just fell in love with ballet, um, which is something that is pretty slow pace. But when it start getting to hip hop and jazz and something about Grandma State University, they strive for excellence. So the band and the dancers or Keith's Dance Company, if anybody knows the history of Grandma, that's one of the main things that, you know, uh, people that are attracted to Gremlin and, and people that love our school, that's what they wait to see. So me not being able to perform to my highest potential, that was definitely something that was an obstacle that was against me, not only my whole life, but once I get to college and it's like, this is the time that you show everybody what you got. <laughs> and not being able to push myself, not because it's, I'm lazy or because I just can't do it, but because of a sickness, that, that hurts so much. One thing about it is I never wanted anyone to see weakness in me. So I'll be dancing sometime, but like, out of breath. And then I, I vividly remember I, I, when I got sick in 2017, I came back and I'm just like, I got this, you know, and everyone not knowing everything that I just went through, <laughs> but getting onto the Marley, which is the dance floor. And I'm like, I'm just, I'm feeling sick. Like I'm about to pass out. So my dance instructor was like, Asia, you need to go home and take it easy. And I literally just sat on the side and cried. Cause I'm just like, that's not fair. Everybody has a way that they can just live and do whatever they want. But when I try to push myself to my full potential and be the person that I know I'm destined to be, then I can't do it because of having asthma. And also the medication. So if, if I am getting sick and I have to take, you know, albuterol, the inhaler, but in between, I have to take the nebulizers because I've gotten to that point where I'm just so sick and nothing else is working, then it makes me shake vigorously. And on top of that, it makes my heart race, which has also caused me to have a tachycardia at the times that I do get really sick. So it's just like the asthma has caused this, that's also caused that. And there, you know, and just from the medication aside, it makes you feel so disoriented and just so, I don't know, just not yourself, then that's also a major problem that I had to deal with. So, you know, going to dance and just shaking or just not feeling like I can just do what I'm, you know, do the simple tasks that are asked of me. And one thing that was so amazing is my dance instructor, she, she, pushed, she pushed me but she also, she always said, like, I know when you're sick and I'm not going to have that on my watch, you passing out. I'm just like, but let me try. And when I fail, 
then you can pick me up and I'll go to the hospital. Cause that's one thing about me. I'm very stubborn. And you know, my mom's like, Asia, I'm going to call the amp. No, please don't call the ambulance. First of all, that's embarrassing. I'll walk after I, you know, <laughs> go take care of all the tasks for the day, but don't call the ambulance mom and she but my mom and people that's close to me they always know when it's to the point where yeah we're going to push you to go to the hospital because we don't want you to die and that's something that's that's scary that you know any 20 26 year old has to just live with but at the same time it's like like I keep saying it's, it's ways for it to be prevented so although there's nothing that I can do about everything that I've went through in my past now that I'm educated and I know why I feel the way I feel, or if I'm getting ready to get sick and I start feeling this way, at least I know what is the cause of everything. And I feel like just like the earth, we can't do, we can't do anything at all about everything that's already happened. The damage is there, but the only thing we can do is just do our best to change for the future for what's left of the earth. So I feel like, you know, my body, I can't, I can't go back and change history of what's happened, um, but I accept it and I can make sure that I'm educated enough to tell the next generation and to, and to tell my child, you know what I mean, that this is what's up against us. So maybe it won't be the same for another kid just by telling what I've been through. Yeah, and I know you've said it's okay to share that you are pregnant. Um, you know, how has being pregnant impacted your perspective or thinking about, you know, the future? Absolutely. So I, I'm pregnant, and um, and one thing about it is I was I've always been so afraid to have kids, and my mom too because she's just like, I'm holding on to you, my dear life. So I don't want it to come to the fact come to the point sorry that we're fighting for your life because you want to have a baby um but you know life happens and this is the this is what is at hand what I'm, which I'm very excited of and you know it's it's no secret I I would tell anybody but I was just so hesitant and it was so scary for me because it's only been six months that I was last in the hospital where, you know, where I was just so sickly, not even being able to walk and having to recover, just go through all that shenanigans again. So to, you know, find out I'm pregnant three months after I just was so sick and my family, you know, crying over me um, was just scary. But at the same time, I just saw it as a blessing. Um, but one thing about it is if I do get sick, that's something that I would handle at that time but I'm trying my best not to, for the simple fact being, I take so many different medicines when I'm, when I get to that point that I'm just that sick. For instance, when I was in the hospital in April and also when I was in the hospital in September, I was brought home on 15 different medications, like not one or two, but you know, like who can feel in their right mind <laughs> on that many medications but and just coming down and recovering and you know I mean just from all that it takes a mental stance on you it's not just something that you forget about because it also you know has caused me to have a little bit of anxiety just not knowing and being afraid that you know at any time I can be sick again but also just having post-traumatic stress disorder you know 
where I'm just having um, nightmares or I'm having bad thoughts about hospital stays because it gets scary. You know what I mean? I don't, I don't remember, uh, I don't know. I just don't know a lot of people that have stories about priests walking into the, <laughs> into the room. I think that was one of the most scariest encounters that I had when I heard the doctor speaking to my mom but nobody was listening to me. I feel like I was trying to be so loud, but no one was speaking. First of all, I had the bypass machine. I don't know if I'm saying it correctly on my head. So I couldn't Bypap, speak. You're anyway. doing great. <laughs> I couldn't speak anyway, but that was, that was scary. You know, being asked, do you want to be intubated or, you know, or do you not want us to perform CPR if something happens? That alone, you know, can, I feel like can cause anybody to have I don't know, just um, thoughts about staying healthy in the future. Uh, with that being said, going back to the original question, being pregnant for me has been a blessing in disguise because it's been very rough. Um, but also I always have my doubts. If I just get a, a little cold, I do not want to take prednisone. I don't want to go through everything that I just went through because it was hard. It was hard just surviving, you know what I mean? And dealing with that on my own. So the fact that there's also a child that I have to keep alive, <laughs> that I have to keep alive on top of making sure that I'm at my tippy top, you know, being healthy um, is very difficult. And what I was gonna say earlier, I got off topic a little bit, but just, just knowing everything that's up against me uh, with my fiance, I'm like, I don't even know if I wanna have kids because it would be selfish for me to to bring a kid into this world with everything that I have up against me, you know what I mean? And not to be negative um, or have just like a, you know, a negative outlook on my life, but it's just, it's my reality. But also, you know, with the support and everything I had, like I said, is a blessing in disguise and, and I'm gonna, you know, love my child, but it's, it's definitely scary. I wonder for both of you, um, Ben and Asia, when you hear arguments that cleaning up the air is, you know, kind of too expensive or that this problem will just go away in 10 years, you know, what comes to mind? I, I mean, I think we just heard what comes to mind. Um, you know, I'm just sitting with, with, with your, your, your descriptions and your stories and your experiences, Asia. Um, you know, I think, uh, now, early in my career, I visited families, you know, that had children with asthma, um, you know, and, and moms similar to your own, right, that were, you know, going to the ER several times a month, you know, walking into rooms with ch children with, you know, lips are blue, and, you know, it's, it's um, you know, I think we can't ignore the power of those, those stories and examples, and the cost, I mean, I, I guess this is the piece around cost, right? I mean, I think one of the things we, we showed in my early work uh, in a program called Healthy Homes um, was that we were avoiding significant costs, right? I mean, Asia gave some really good indications, right? You know, $50,000, $20,000, $40,000, right? I mean, we are paying the cost and it's, it's really who's paying it. Right. And so when this argument is made around like, well, it's going to cost this part of our, this sector of our economy, this much money, like, well, that the costs are, 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 are happening somewhere. Right. And I think we need to be really open and honest about that. Um, and one of the things that Healthy Homes showed is that when we had a model that included 
you know, an environmental health specialist, community health worker who is working with kind of the home environment, right? Those, some of those asthma triggers uh, that we could control, right? Um, a lot of times, right? By, by advocating for, uh, you know, landlords to do some of their work, uh, making simple changes to reduce uh, things like mold, cockroaches, you know, pet gander, uh, you know, rodent infestations, these things that can be asthma triggers in the home, you know, encouraging families to use, uh, you know, uh, green cleaners um, that, you know, all these things, right, that we could do in the home. But the reality is they should really accurately and, and, and uh, I think importantly described is that folks are living in, pop in communities and in environments where they're surrounded by, by additional triggers, uh, uh, surrounded by, environmental hazard. And what we showed in environmental, uh, environmental health and healthy homes is that, you know, we ultimately got Medicaid reimbursement for the environmental assessments, uh, working with community health nurses as well, because of the cost avoidance, right? That every child that you kept out of an emergency room, um, particularly for, you know, the families that Multnomah County works with, with, which are also often, you know, uh, either a publicly funded healthcare or, or uninsured, right? That those costs are, are, are happening, right? They're occurring. They don't just go away, um, you know, because we want them to. And I, I, I think it's just a false equivalence, right? When folks say, you know, it's gonna cost too much for industry um, when, when we're paying out of pocket, uh, when we're paying uh, as, as, as uh, taxpayers for the overall cost. So, you know, I, 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 you know, I do believe that, you know, technology will help us you know, transition to what we might call a, a just uh, approach to, to human health and ecological protection. Um, but it's, it's you know, the, the arguments exist that you just named. And I, I mean, I, I'm kind of flabbergasted, right? I don't even know how to respond to it because I think it's like, if you're gonna look at costs, you have to look at all the costs, uh, both really easily and those invisible, quote unquote, invisible costs that, that are, are captured in the stories that Asia, Asia just uh, uh, shared, right? It's not just the cost of the hospital stay, but I think what you said, Asia, that was really powerful, right? It's the stress, it's the anxiety, it's the trauma that comes with that, that has you know, ongoing and other impacts. And it's the other parts of your body that are impacted, right? Like if you're you know, a young woman at 26 years old, having fear about whether to bring a child into the world, um, right? Like, how do you calculate that cost, right? How do you calculate the fear of like my, you know, uh, of death, right? At 26 years old, and I, I'm just sitting with that in such a powerful example that when we when we equate, you know, the, the cost of industry to to put a capture device on an emission or emission control device, or or to have cleaner engines, yeah. um, and we ignore the reality of of uh, human experience, it, it just, it blows my mind. And, and uh, I think that's, you know, I think why so many of us try to, you know, bring a public health and environmental justice lens into this work that really tries to lift up those, those uh, you know, hidden costs, but the costs that are so uh, deeply traumatic and, and impactful on, on individuals and communities. Absolutely. Asia, how about you when someone says that it's too expensive to use newer engines. Um, what what does that make you think of? First of all, they've probably never met me. Um, if they feel like that is just too expensive because much like Ben said, I mean, what's the price that you can just put on, you know what I mean, just on someone's life. 
and specifically in America, they we spend so much money on mass destruction and you know and for wars and everything, but you're not fighting for your own people, you know, because the change starts right here. It's they're willing to pay for so much other stuff that doesn't matter, but when it comes to free healthcare, which a lot of other countries and it, it that's not even an option. I th- I doubt that would ever be something that you know that's for us but it's just unfortunate it's very unfortunate and also like I said they haven't met me so you can hear about people on the tv that's gotten sick or you can you know say oh a friend told me that their friend told them that they knew someone that had to get tubes down their throat for asthma but actually living it and you know going through the day the day-to-day basis with knowing that stuff can be changed but it's too expensive like that's not even, that's shutting down before kids even have a, have an opportunity to not go through what I went through. That's disturbing their childhood before they even know it. People are being brought into the world with not even knowing that chemical pollution, the, the bad stuff that's put into the air is one of the main reasons of health problems. It's not because you know your, your family had it, which a lot may be, That's why we're talking today, because if it wasn't a problem, we wouldn't be here. But it's like the fact that there's something that can be changed and and they don't they choose not to. It's just it's very heartbreaking. It is because then it's like our lives don't really matter. Our health doesn't matter. So even if even if it's something that that person isn't going through, they don't maybe don't even know that their grandmother or their aunt has cancer because of the air or has high blood pressure or has, you know, heart disease and all this different stuff because of the air. So I think it's really unfortunate. Even the people that are saying no against it, well, what happens when it happens to your kids, even though you're not in our community because most of the people that are making these decisions don't even live where I live or, you know, never walked around to be coughing because there's a construction site on every other every other block. So it's like, even though you don't live where I live and go through what we go through, what happens when it's your wife or your mom or your kids? That's the decision that they have to live with, but it's very sad. Yeah. If, I could, if I could add really quickly, I know we're probably close to, to time. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that I'm sitting with that I feel like it's important to say, right? Like we're having this national reckoning Right, around a frame of Black Lives Matter, right? And, I, I, and I, I'm holding some historical context. You know, we were at a place in this country where it was too expensive to pay human beings for the chattel slavery, right? Or indentured uh, chattel slavery, right? To, to, to run an economy. Um, you know, I think we have to name, right? Just and understand that history, right? That Black people in particular and all the data that shows us, right? have been in sacrifice zones, um, going back to the root of this, this, this nation. And we have to name it as systemic environmental racism, right? Related mm-hmm. to land use and economic oppression and the imbalance of political power, right? Because it's all contributing to what we're talking about today. Um, and so when we see it over and over again, or when somebody makes that argument, right? For me, I hearken back to this idea that you don't value our lives, right? You are willing to sacrifice our lives 
our children's lives, our generations to come's lives for the sake of profit, right? For the sake of expediency, for the, you know, the, the sake of, of uh, you know, getting here to here faster. Um, you know, I think about even my own father's family who uh, was displaced in upstate New York when they built uh, Interstate 81. And there's a story in every city in this United States of highways that displaced and gentrified and bifurcated black communities in particular. Um, and so I, you know, I, I feel like I had to say that, right? Like when we talk about, you know, yes, there's economic analysis and we can try to do better at making visible the, the hidden costs of, of uh, human health. But also we had to name that this is a ongoing legacy of systemic racism that goes back to the founding of this country and shows up in this arena every day. And so when I think about that question, um, again, I just feel like that's, that's just one more way that you say you don't care about black people's lives, right? And so this notion of black lives matter um, that's been largely focused on uh, the violence perpetrated by the criminal legal system. Um, we can't forget that black lives need to matter in our environmental and ecological systems as well. So I appreciate the, the space to say that, but uh, you know, as you were talking, Asia, and just talking about kind of you know, human lives and the value of life and people caring and knowing and seeing us in our full humanity. Uh, I feel like you know, environmental toxics and pollution and harm uh, is, is a complete affront to that humanity. Um, so you can say unequivocally Black Lives Matter, right? Amen. Well, I, I do want to be respectful of both of your time, and I thank you for coming and sharing this story with me. You know, I think, um, you know, usually on this podcast, I'm interviewing a scientist about a study, um, but I feel like this was actually really a lot of the motivation of this podcast was this focus on how much the air we breathe determines generations of health. Um, and every day in my ICU and clinic, I see people like Asia who are there, um, you know, fighting to breathe because of the air that we all breathe and um, that some people are forced to breathe unhealthier air. And so um, I really wanted to have, you know, kind of this more human um, episode. And I thank you both for joining me. Is there anything else you want to say? I thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to be a part of this. And I'm going to keep fighting and, you know, and be trying to be informed about environmental injustice because we all deserve to have the same the same I don't know the same childhood the same life as you know just the the I don't know but yeah I thank you so much thank you yeah, I would just echo the appreciation and and uh thank you uh for the work that you do every day right in service to to communities in Asia for sharing your story um and, and I, I'm, I'm confident that your journey of advocacy and influence uh, will be meaningful um, and it will change people's lives. So I just really appreciate sharing the space with the two of you. Thank you, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining me today for this conversation. I hope it gives you a glimpse of the potential toll of asthma on an individual and a family, and the toll on that asthma is exacerbated by a variety of factors, whether from a lack of insurance coverage to breathing polluted air, to the prolonged pollen seasons we now have from climate change. 
Multiple policy decisions have led to our communities of color breathing more polluted air than the rest of the United States, despite being responsible for generating less of the pollution. We need to include those costs in the true cost of estimating whether cleaning up the air is too expensive. For every one microgram per meter cubed increase in PM2.5, there's a 7.2% increase in asthma hospitalizations and a 4.2% increase in ER visits. You heard today about how much that can cost a family and all of us in terms of higher healthcare premiums. Kids with asthma miss two and a half more days of school than kids without asthma, and adults with asthma miss around 14 million workdays each year, around $2.5 billion of additional costs. All this contributes to the over $70 billion the U.S. spends on asthma each year. Fortunately, we know policy works and that cleaning up the air leads to lung growth in children and fewer missed sick days. If you would like to review these studies, please see the accompanying post on the website for the episode. So what can you do? To learn more about the impact of air pollution on health, listen to the episode two with Dr. Matt Drake and episode 17 with Dr. Ritz. You can also learn about redlining and how it affects air quality in episode 27 with Professor Shondas. For more about how policy can work, listen to episode 12 about cleaning up diesel school buses and episode 16 about the financial stimulus and decrease in asthma we might see with a transition to electric vehicles. For more about air pollution and air toxics in the Portland metro area, listen to episode five with Mary Pivotow and episode seven with Professor Linda George. Find out what you can do in your community to decrease air pollution. Reach out to your local county commissioner, city council, and state and national legislators to tell them that cleaning up the air not only saves lives, it saves money. And finally, consider a donation to organizations like Neighbors for Clean Air or Opal Environmental Justice or a group in your community working to clean up the air. Consider it an investment with high returns in terms of lower future healthcare expenditures and higher productivity. We're coming to the end of the podcast. For more information about the importance of healthy air, please visit airhealthourhealth.org and follow on Instagram and Facebook. Remember, if you do nothing else, don't light things on fire and breathe them into your lungs. This applies to tobacco, diesel fuel, forests, and more. Thanks for joining me today. I am a full-time physician and not an epidemiologist or public health expert. This podcast is for your education and entertainment, but should not be interpreted as individual medical advice. Please consult with your own healthcare team to determine what is right for your health. Thank you and stay safe.